Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to First uh, Peter chapter three. Mike talked about uh, sometimes the text beating us up during the week, and this one beat me up, and it's probably going to beat you up today too. <laughs> Um, this is one of those sections of Scripture where um, maybe some feathers are going to get ruffled, but hopefully it's a good thing. I remember years ago I was at a pastor's conference and somebody, there was a Q&A session with a, a panel of pastors, and somebody stood up and asked the question, how do, you, how do you know when you've begun to preach the gospel? And, and they were asking in the context of like, what's the difference between maybe teaching a Bible study and, and preaching from the pulpit? And a um, very well-respected pastor said that you haven't begun to preach the gospel until you've begun to rub up against people's lives. And what he wasn't saying is that the gospel needs our help to be offensive, but sometimes it, it does ruffle our feathers. Uh, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing because uh, I think as Tim Keller points out, if you always agree with your God, then maybe your God is just an idealized version of you. Uh, and he goes on to talk about how if you, if you never disagree with your God, that's a bad thing. Like, if, if God is sovereign and if he's all-knowing and all-powerful and, and ever-present, uh, he knows things that we don't know and he sees things that we don't see. And if that never challenges us or rubs up against us, then that's kind of problematic. Um, <clears throat> so with that, today our, our text, First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, uh, deals with husbands and wives. It deals with... Uh, particularly the role of Christian women as it pertains to their husbands and the role of Christian husbands as it pertains to their wives. The bulk of the text uh, is speaking more so uh, to wives than it is husbands, but it's important that we understand that Peter, uh, as he gets into this text, he's working off of a presupposition of God-given roles for men and for women. And time just doesn't allow us today to kind of catch up with this starting point uh, from which Peter is working as it pertains to Christian marriage. Um, so just understand there's a presupposition that Peter uh, is starting with that, that God has given roles both to husbands and wives that are, that are intentional, that are by his good design uh, for our flourishing as Christians uh, who are married. And at the end of the day, I'm a sinner that's married to a sinner and so are you. And, and we occupy the same space and most of us have procreated and, and let more sinners loose into the world. And those little sinners are going to grow up to be big sinners, and they're going to marry other sinners, and they're going to procreate and let more sinners into the world. And, and so there's bound to be some issues with that, just given the way that it is. But God, in His wisdom, in His sovereignty, has given distinct, uh, what we would call complementary roles to men and to women. Different roles, yet complementary and the role that God has, has given to husbands, Christian husbands, uh, is to be the leaders of their families. And the role that God has given to Christian wives is to coming alongside that leadership uh, as a helper for the husband. And now, in order to understand this, we, we do have to unpack at least a, a little bit to be helpful today. Um, when God created the first man, Adam, He recognized very quickly that it was not good that Adam was alone. And so he then created the woman Eve as a helper for Adam. Now, it's important that we understand what the Bible means when it talks about Eve being a helper. When the Bible talks about Eve being a helper, it's not Adam saying, I'm doing all this hard work over here, please go make me a sandwich. It's not that kind of a helper. 
Well, the Bible talks about Eve as a helper. You ever watch a war movie? Pick your favorite war movie. Saving Private Ryan, Full Metal Jacket, whatever list, list goes on. We were soldiers. You know the guy that carries around the backpack, the radio backpack? When, when things get really bad, somebody finds the guy with the backpack and they grab the phone and they radio in for help. This is what God had in mind when he created Eve as a helper for Adam, right? Military help when things get difficult. That's what God had in mind for the leadership of Adam and, and the helping of his wife Eve. That being said, there are many scenarios where in Christian households that this just simply isn't the case. And, and again, time isn't going to permit us to unpack all of these scenarios where the ideal isn't being achieved, okay? Um, so understand that Peter's going to kind of pick one scenario that we are going to unpack today, but we just don't have time to unpack all of the different scenarios where um, things tend to go off of the rails. So we'll leave all of that for another day. The other factor in this is just the cultural moment in which we live. Women's liberation and the feminist movement have been working hard for a long time, not, not just today, but for a long time, fighting for equal rights for women. And there's no question that throughout history that there have been, there's plenty of times where uh, women have been marginalized. Conversely, there's a new term of late that I don't know if you've heard this in the news called toxic masculinity. And people argue that it's toxic masculinity that built the world, right? Overachieving guys full of testosterone that wanted to conquer. And that's what built the world. But it's this new term, toxic masculinity, that's under attack for the marginalization of women. And at least to some extent, there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that, and so Peter's going to speak to husbands today as well. But from the beginning, if we know our Bibles, from the very beginning, from Genesis, the beginning of recorded history as we know it, we know that because of sin and because of the rebellion that came into the world through Adam and Eve, that part of the result of that, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, is that there's going to be contention between men and women, between husbands and wives. It's part of sin. It's part of the fall. However, what we're hopefully going to see today is that both the modern liberated woman and the historical toxic man are no more than just poor caricatures that fall short of God's good design for His image bearers. The Bible tells us that, that both male and female are created in the image and in the likeness of God, and that we each in our distinct roles in our distinct personality traits and the ways that God has made men and the ways that God has made women, that we all display His image. And that's true of all humans, not just Christians. All humans, the Bible tells us, were made in the image of God. And so the analogy that I like to use is that when you go to the carnival and you go into the house of mirrors and you see you know, one mirror makes you look you know, short and fat, another one makes you look tall and skinny, one makes you look like a small body with a big head, all these different versions of you but they really are caricatures of you, right? And so God in His goodness has made both male and female to bear His image, but because of sin, we, we bear a caricatured image really of who God is. And so what the world would be proud of to say that women have been liberated and men are toxic uh, to some extent are just caricatures of God's good design for both men and for women. 
His Word, the Bible, His inspired, His inerrant, His infallible Word gives us a much higher view of both femininity and masculinity than the modern views, and the Bible really turns those views upside down, or maybe we should say right side up. So again, because of just this current cultural moment that we're in, this tends to be a bit of a hot topic. As a matter of fact, uh, another maybe new word to you, some might consider part of what I'm about to do is mansplaining. And if you don't know what that is, you can look it up later. You can Google it. Trust me, you'll find all kinds of information about what mansplaining is. And that's not my goal today, (laughs) is to mansplain to anybody uh, anything, but it is uh, my goal today to look at the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God and let it speak to us as we look, uh, really just scratching the surface of, of gender and marriage. There's a lot that could be said about this, again, that time just won't permit for us to do uh, today. But as we dive into 1 Peter chapter 3, I, I want to start off, I, I just did a quick Google search of um, f- some feminist quotes that I thought might be helpful for us today. The artist Rihanna says that there's something so special about a woman who dominates in a man's world. It takes a certain grace, strength, intelligence, fearlessness, and the nerve to, take, to not take no for an answer. Beyonce, any members of the beehive out here? Beyonce says, we need to reshape our own perception of how we view ourselves speaking of women. We have to step up as women and take the lead. A couple lesser familiar names, uh, Naomi Wolf says, For I conclude that the enemy is not lipstick, but guilt itself. We deserve lipstick, if we want it, and free speech if we want that, and we deserve to be sexual, and we deserve to be serious, or whatever we please. We are entitled to wear cowboy boots to our own revolution. Julia Burchill says, A good part, and definitely the most fun part of being a feminist, is about frightening men. Louisa May Alcott says, the emerging woman will be strong-minded, strong-hearted, strong-souled, strong-bodied. Strength and beauty must go together. And that last quote actually hits upon what I think is a biblical truth, and I don't think she was aiming to hit upon a biblical truth, but I think she kind of accidentally hit on a truth. Strength and beauty actually do go together, but just not quite in the way that modern feminism would probably have us think. The Apostle Peter, he's going to show us just the kind of strength and beauty for which God has made women, and it's going to fall woefully short of modern ideals. Maybe a better way to say it is that modern ideals are going to pale in comparison to God's intentional design and good standard for women who are made to bear His image. Peter starts off the third chapter of his first epistle by saying, Likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And immediately we have kind of this problem or something that, that ruffles some feathers. He, this call to be subject, right? All of us, whether we're male or female, man or woman, we, we don't like to be subject to anything. We're, we're Westerners. We're Americans, right? Don't, don't hold me down. I think David's last sermon was called, Don't Tread on Me. Right? We, we don't want to be subject to anyone or anything. And Peter says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, he doesn't qualify this statement, and so I want to qualify it just a little bit about what being subject is not in this call to wives to be subject to their own husbands. A wife being subject to her own husband uh, doesn't mean that if your husband asks, asks you to abandon your faith in Christ that you should do it. It doesn't mean that. Being subject to your husband, women, doesn't mean that if your husband asks you to sin that you should do that. 
It doesn't mean that you must always agree with your husband and never present a differing view. It doesn't mean that if your husband is unfaithful to you that you're left without biblical recourse. It doesn't mean that if you're in an abusive situation uh, or if you are abandoned by your husband that you must remain quietly and accept the cruelty of that kind of relationship and its cost. It doesn't mean any of those things. Peter's call for Christian wives to be subject is in line with previous sections. Notice he says, likewise, wives be subject to your husbands. So this word likewise means we've got to pay attention to what came first, what came before we got to this point. And what came in the section immediately before this is Peter talking to slaves to be subject to their masters. And as Pastor Brent pointed out, it's not, not slavery like you're thinking. This is more of an employee-employer type of relationship that was in view here. And Peter calling workers to be subject to even the worst of bosses, right? We've all had situations at work where maybe we've had, you know, coworkers that we don't like or bosses that are um, unusually hard on us. And Peter says that we as Christians ought to be subject even to the worst of bosses. And before that, Pastor David preached a few weeks ago about being subject to the ruling authorities that God has given us government for our good. Government isn't always good, but God has given it to us for our good and for our safety and for our protection. And he calls us to be subject to those authorities even even when they're not good. And so we get to this section and he's saying, Wives, and he'll speak to husbands here in a moment, but he's right now saying to wives, just like you should be subject to governing authorities that aren't always good, and just like you should be subject to bosses that aren't always good, that God has given wives the role to come under the leadership of their husband, even when that husband isn't always good. The call to subjection for all of us, for man and for woman, for all Christians, is a reflection of our faith in Jesus. Likewise, wives are called to be subject to their husbands as a reflection of their faith in Jesus. A few verses earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might also die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so Peter gives us a gospel reasoning why any of us would be subject to anyone or anything. And it's because of ultimately the example that we have in Christ. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that, that he was God, and for a time when the God-man stepped into earth, he set Equality with God as a thing to be grasped, it says, he set that aside for a time. He became subject to his own creation, so much so that he died on a cross at the hands of people that he created. And so we have this example of subjection, the Son conforming to the will of the Father. This call to subjection is a matter of faith. Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're a child, The call to subjection for all Christians is a matter of faith. 
And so Peter says, in light of that, in light of this call to subjection as a matter of your faith, wives be subject to your husbands, just like all Christians are subject to someone uh, or something. And he says, be subject to your own husbands. And so what he's not saying is that every woman has to be subject to every man everywhere. That's not in view here. Peter is saying, be subject to your own husbands. And this, again, rubs up against our individualistic, independent, autonomous, Western American notions, does it not? If it doesn't rub up against those notions, there's something that's not right. But it goes back all the way to the beginning at creation, as we've already talked about. God designed male and female with distinct and complementary roles, and we've been fighting it since the beginning. There was a period, have you ever thought about this? There was a period where creation was in perfect harmony with the Creator. Right? God created everything, created night and day, and the bugs, the birds, the fish, the animals, people, plants, trees, everything you see God created. And there was a time where that creation was in perfect harmony with the Creator before sin entered the world. I don't know how long that period of time was. I don't know what it was like during that period of time. But there was a, there was a time where creation was in perfect harmony with its Creator. And then Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good design, His good plan for them. And sin entered the world and everything changed. Creation was no longer in perfect harmony with the Creator from that point forward. And won't be until Christ comes back to redeem all of the wrong things. And we're told in Genesis 3, again, that that there's going to be contention between husbands and wives because of this rebellion. And so at the end of the day, because of sin, because of our own rebellion, see, we inherited Adam and Eve's rebellion. They rebelled against God, and and that has been inherited by every person that's lived after them, including you and me and and the sinners that we procreate and bring into the world. We inherit the rebellion. It's hereditary, if you will. And so because of our own sin and because of our own rebellion against God's created order, the result is that everything is harder than it needs to be. Everything's harder than it needs to be. And to make it worse, it's our own fault. Because we continue in our rebellion to try to live in God's world, yet not according to God's design. We fight it. Just like Adam and Eve fought God's good plan for them, we fight God's good plan for us. Notice that Peter doesn't qualify this call of wives to be subject to their husbands by saying if the husbands... Like if you have a really good husband be subject to him. He doesn't say that. He just says, wives, be subject to your husband. No qualifiers. No qualifiers of who the wives are, no qualifiers of of the deservedness of the husbands. He goes so far even, as we read on, he says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see that you're respectful and pure conduct. And so what we can pull from that is Peter picks a scenario and says, even if you have an unbelieving husband, if you're a Christian woman and you have an unbelieving husband, even that one, wives, be subject to that husband. And so we can imagine all kinds of scenarios in between the perfect husband and the unbelieving husband. And Peter basically, by calling this out, just covers every scenario 
in between the perfect husband and the unbelieving husband. It says, wives, be subject to your husband. Short of extraordinary circumstances such as abuse like we've talked about, a Christian woman with an unbelieving husband has to be some sort of a worst-case scenario. Many reasons why this could be. Maybe a couple got married and a wife came to faith and a husband didn't. Many reasons why somebody would be in this circumstance. And then Peter encourages wives that your husbands might possibly be one without you even saying anything if you conduct yourself by my good design, by God's good design. Now, I don't think Peter is saying that this is something that's going to happen every time, that if, that if, you're an unbe- if you are a, a believing wife with an unbelieving husband and if you just mind your P's and Q's that every time that's going to result in an unbelieving husband coming to faith, Peter's not saying that. What he's saying is that there, there is no chance, Christian wife, that if you don't live in God's world according to God's ways, there's no chance that an unbelieving husband is going to look at your conduct and say, I need some of that. And so there's a way for unbelieving wives to witness to their husbands without necessarily opening their mouths. And I don't, I don't think Peter is advocating that you never open your mouth and that you never speak. He's not advocating that. Don't hear that. But, but when it does come time, for an unbelieving wife to speak the gospel, or a believing wife to speak the gospel to an unbelieving husband, <clears throat> when the husband can look at a life and say that life makes sense with the words that are coming out of her mouth, some, something special could possibly happen. That God could use that to bring an unbelieving husband to faith. <clears throat> Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that in some do not obey the word that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of your heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. So first, Peter tells us, here, here's where the real, here's where the beauty is, women. First he says, here's where it isn't. Don't let your adorning be, your adorning be external, hair, jewelry, and clothing. And I don't think Peter's speaking against those things. I don't think he's saying to women, you can't ever do your hair and you can't look nice and you can't go shop for the clothes that you want to wear. I don't think he's saying that at all. But as a contrast, he says, here's, here's where the real beauty of a woman is. Really the beauty of a person but here's where the real beauty of a woman is, and it's the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And we'll talk in a moment about gentle and quiet spirit and what that is and isn't. But Peter's saying there's a beauty that comes from the inside that's far more beautiful than anything that can be produced on the outside. And again, I don't, I don't think he's saying, don't worry about the outside. I don't think he's saying that at all. But he's saying, let, let your beauty come from the inner person of who you are. Not how you look, not what you wear. We, we live in a world that places a high value, especially on women and how they look and the things that they wear, the makeup they choose to use or not use. And what Peter is saying is that the real beauty, the real beauty is who you are on the inside, not on the outside. It says that there's a beauty 
in a woman who has a gentle and a quiet spirit. Well, what does this mean? I was remembering <clears throat> the other day, maybe you guys might remember, I can't remember how many months back it was, but there was a protest in Bend. I um, can't remember the, the whole story, but there were a couple of guys who were illegal immigrants and they came in a bus to pick them up. And uh, I was at a hotel in Bend and <clears throat> people caught wind of it. And all of a sudden there's this crowd gathered around the bus. Remember this, maybe, maybe hundreds of people gathered and this thing lasted, you know, the better part of a day. And I was just kind of fascinated by this, watching the news in our local hometown. It actually made national news, this protest. Hundreds of people blocking this bus in and blocking ICE from taking these illegal immigrants. And I can't remember, you know, what their alleged crimes were, but that's not the point of the story. There was this crowd that gathered, and there were different social justice groups that were gathered there. Some names of groups you might know if I said the names. But, but there were a couple of women who throughout the day, kind of traded off the bullhorn, addressing the crowd. And one woman who was associated with one group, uh, very strong personality, you could just tell. She gets the bullhorn and she, she speaks loudly and speaks with authority, uh, strong voice, uh, and she just seemed angry. She just seemed angry. And her anger, when she got the bullhorn several times throughout the day, this crowd would just get riled up. It's kind of like, you know, pitchforks are coming out when, when she grabs the bullhorn. Then there was another woman, and she, she was a reverend at a local church, had a, had a clerical caller, uh, and she would grab the bullhorn, and she just had this calming presence on the crowd. She wasn't angry. You could visibly see when she picked up the bullhorn, the crowd would just, you know, take a deep breath, and people weren't angry anymore. And these two women were kind of leading different parts of this protest. And then the first woman would grab the bullhorn again and, and people would get angry and fists are starting to shake and these kinds of things. And then the second woman once again would get the bullhorn and there would be this kind of collective calm that would come over the crowd. And I'm not speaking to the reasons why these people were there, why they were doing what they were doing. I was just was kind of fascinated at these two women that were taking leadership roles and one of them just stirred up the crowd every time, you know, hours throughout the day. The other one just had this calming effect on the crowd. Both of them were there battling for, in their minds, what was social justice, and I think they even had different outcomes that they were working for. That was part of the contention of, of the whole thing. But, but it just made me think that the second woman in particular, um, she was gentle and she was quiet. She wasn't a doormat. She was leading a protest, for crying out loud. She wasn't a doormat. But she had this calming effect on the crowd that, you know, even months later, like, I'm still just kind of fascinated by this. Peter is telling us that there's a beauty for a woman who has this gentle, quiet spirit about her, not, not being a doormat, not being subservient to men, not, not that kind of a thing, but there's something about a woman that has a gentle, quiet spirit about her there's a beauty that radiates from that, that you can never radiate with any amount of makeup, any amount of clothes, any amount of jewelry, even the most expensive stuff out there. And then he goes on to say in verse 5 that this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And so he's looking back in history and we don't know exactly who these holy women are that he has in mind, but, but you can probably imagine as you think back in, in Bible history of, of Old Testament women, you can, names are probably starting to come to your mind, and that's probably who Peter has in mind. 
And, and he says that, that this is where the beauty comes from, and this is a thing that's very precious in God's sight. Because God looks at the inside long before he looks at the outside. And then he uses this example of how Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. As he's thinking about kind of the holy women of old. Then he said, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And as we think back to the story of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, um, there's lots in the Bible about Abraham. If you've read through the book of Genesis, you might be familiar with Abraham. But a couple of things immediately come to mind when, when I read this, and I think about the times where Abra- Abraham was generally kind of this, a good guy. Right? God used Abraham to do some great things uh, in biblical history. But there were a couple of moments when Abraham didn't shine so bright. And these couple of moments were where when Abraham's life was in danger, he threw his wife under the bus in order to protect himself. Right? They, they were traveling along and, and they, these people were, bad guys were coming to get him and he, and he tells his, his wife, pretend that you're my sister because if they know that you're, wife, that you're my wife, they're going to kill me. He, he wasn't leading his wife very well and this happened more than once. Now that's where my mind immediately goes to, but Peter commends Sarah for coming under the leadership of her husband. And I think we can look at these scenarios where Abraham kind of threw her under the bus and say that wasn't good and that wasn't right and that's, that's not what God would prescribe for male leadership, for a husband's leadership. That was not good leadership on Abraham's part. But generally, Peter looks back at the life of Sarah and says that she came under the leadership of her husband and that her life as documented in the Bible, is worthy of emulation, worthy of looking back upon and following her lead. And if you do so, women, he says that you are Sarah's children, if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. And I think what Peter is saying here is that he's saying that a woman who displays her faith in God by trusting God's design for the different and complementary roles for which God has created us, that they are good and that they are right. Proverbs 31 gives us a grand vision for the kind of godly woman that I think that Peter is talking about. And I just want to read the whole chapter to you. It's not very long. Proverbs 31 says, An excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands, and she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands on the distaff and the hands that hold the spindle. She opens up her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household. All of her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. 
Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is God's vision for womanhood. And as you can see from this, this is not a woman who's a doormat. This is not a woman who just puts off with a bunch of guff from toxic men. This is a woman that works hard, that cares for her family, that fears the Lord, which is the most important thing. And when Peter says, look at the women of old, like this, this is the idea, look at the women of old. And if you are like them, if, you're, if you can be described at least to some extent in, in this way, then you're doing well in meeting God's design for womanhood as an image bearer of God. Peter goes on in verse 7 with a word to husbands. Likewise, there's that word again, likewise. In other words, in, in light of all these calls for subjection, subjection to government, subjection to bad bosses, wives being subject to husbands, he says, likewise, so husbands are not off the hook, husbands are subject as well. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of grace and life, that your prayers may not be hindered. But what does the world say about manhood? General Patton said that duty is the essence of manhood. Samuel Taylor Coleridge says that genius is the power of carrying the feelings of manhood into the powers of manhood. John Eldridge, a Christian author, says that it was men who stopped slavery. It was men who ran up the stairs in the Twin Towers to rescue people. It was men who gave up their seats in the lifeboats of the Titanic. Men are made to take risks and live passionately on behalf of others. Camille Paglia says that a woman simply is, but a man must become. Masculinity is risky and it's elusive. It's achieved by a revolt from a woman and it's confirmed only by other men. Manhood, coerced into sensitivity, is no manhood at all. And hopefully you're kind of catching the drift that you know, these are not biblical visions of manhood. This is, this is what the world says to men, that, that you have a duty and you, you must be tough and you must take risks. And maybe there's some truth to those things. The world says that men can't be sensitive. That men shouldn't, shouldn't bear their feelings. Right? We all get uncomfortable when you start to see a man cry, don't we? As men, we feel like, like I, can't, I can't cry because I'm a man. Right? And again, these are not biblical visions of manhood. Paul says to husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And, and I'll be the first one to say that I don't always live with my wife in a very understanding way. Part of what beat me up this week. Peter's command to husbands is to live with their wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, and, and women, don't, don't get your feathers ruffled by, be calling, by being called the weaker vessel. I think what Peter has in view here is just the physical attributes of men and women, 
Generally speaking, men are stronger than women just in a physical sense. That's probably what Peter has in mind here. And it's, again, part of God's good design for which he created. The, the bigger call, the focus of this is that husbands would live with their wives in an understanding way. And there's all kinds of things that are implied by this. Patience, grace, forgiveness, things I'm not always great at. then he ends this section by saying, reminding us that men, your wives, they're heirs of grace and life just like you. In other words, here's where Peter levels the playing field. If, if you're wondering up to this point, what's Peter saying about like our men and women, are they equal? This is where Peter levels the playing field. All of us men and women are heirs of grace and life. All of us men and women are created in the image of God and bear his resemblance to the world in different and complementary ways. And so there's no room here to say that, that one gender is better than the other or worse than the other. Peter reminds us that, that we're all heirs with Christ. Then he ends with this weird remark about men and about their prayers not being hindered. And I think just the plain reading of this is to say that, that as a husband, as a Christian husband, if you don't live with your wife in an understanding sort of a way, in other words, if you don't live in God's world in God's way, when it comes time for you to go to God and ask Him for help with the things of life, your prayers might be hindered. If you say, in one hand, God, I'm going to do things my way and not your way, and then over here say, well, God, I really could use some help over here, there's something that's disingenuous about that. There's a disconnect for you men who in one hand would choose not to live in God's prescribed way, yet on the other hand ask God for help in the way that you live. And that hinders our prayers. I, I think this is just the plain reading of this, is that it hinders our prayers when, when we as husbands are not living with our wives in the way that God has commanded that we live with our wives, and it's mindful as we bring this to a close of Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25, that says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, meaning in the same way that Christ has loved the church, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then there's a reference back to Genesis again that says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's a beautiful thing that happens in Christian marriage where two, the two become one. And again, by God's good and right design. And the bar for husbands, it's a high bar to say love your wife like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for the church. He sacrificed for the church. He served the church. He gave everything for the church. And the Apostle Paul says, husbands, love your wives just like that. That should ruffle your feathers a little bit too because that, that's, that's, I can't do that. You can't do that. And then in verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 5, 
Paul tells us that the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, this command in marriage to live the way that we're commanded to live, this idea of wives being subject to their husbands and husbands leading and understanding their wives in a benevolent and gracious way, again, by God's good and right design, that this is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church. In other words, it's meant to be a picture, Christian marriage, ultimately, of the gospel. It's meant to give a picture to a watching world about the truth of the gospel that's captured inside of Christian marriage in a way that it's not captured inside anything else in the world. Husbands loving their wives and wives loving their husbands the way that God has ordered shows the world something about Christ and the church. It shows the world something about who God is in a unique way that nothing else can, can display the gospel like. There's lots of things that display the gospel, but nothing can display the gospel quite like Christian marriage. And that's why we hold marriage in such high esteem. And that's why we take seriously the call for men and for women to live in God's world in the way that God has designed them. And I feel like today that I've only just kind of scratched the surface of some of this, and I apologize for that. We've probably gone long because there's way more to be said than what time has allowed us to be said. But I would ask you to consider men, consider women as an image bearer, as one who is created in the image of God, and, and as one who has been given a way to live by God's good and right design, what that looks like for you. Because there's something about when we, when we choose to go against what God has commanded, we, we just make things harder for ourselves. We make things harder for ourselves because of our own sin and our own rebellion. And so this call to subjection is for all of us, that we would be subject ultimately to the authority of God's Word and that we would take seriously what God's Word says to us, and that we would ask for God's help to live in the way that He's commanded us to live, because our natural inclination is to fight against it. My natural inclination is to fight against it, so I'm guessing yours must be too. And so, consider today that as Christians, there's this kind of broader call to be subject to someone or something, and this is by God's good and right design for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care for us. <clears throat> thankful that you are concerned with how we live and thankful that you have made us male and female by your good and right design, intentional design, so that as we live, we could show the world who you are. So God, help us in the areas that we need help. Help the women here today, God, to live um, displaying their faith in you by the way they live. Help the men that are here today to live by displaying their faith in the things that they say and the things that they do so that we all might bear a more accurate image of who you are to the world around us in the hopes that people would come to know you as we display the gospel in our own lives and we display the gospel in our homes and in our marriages and our families. God, we need your help and we ask for it today in Christ's name. Amen.